Almighty Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we are excited to be here. We are excited to hear your word. Lord, speak to us. Speak to us. And Jesus, I pray that this morning you would open our ears and our eyes. Lord, help us to hear you because we want to follow you. God the Spirit, we invite you to take control now. To open us up to what you have to say so that we will know you better and therefore love you and trust you more. Remove from us those things that would distract us, God, so that we can hear you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In Judges chapter 11, we learn the story of Jephthah the Gileadite. Gileadite, sorry. The tragic hero of the story vowed to offer as a sacrifice whatever first came out of his door to greet him should Yahweh give him the victory in this coming battle. Now, what on earth he was thinking, we may never know. Why on earth? He didn't just simply offer the, whoops, I made a bad vow offering, the one that's outlined in Leviticus, we may never know either. But what he in fact did is he offered his daughter as a sacrifice. Now that's a disgusting story. That's an awful story. Part of the reason that story is there is because we need to understand in technicolor clarity that without leadership, people do absolutely disgusting things. Another reason for the story is because it happened. The Bible doesn't color its characters in rose-tinted shades. The Bible is brutally honest about the failings and the glories of those depicted in its pages. Another reason this story is there is so that you and I will pursue knowing God's Word so we don't do stupid stuff. All of which leads to a very valuable lesson. There is much in God's Word that is by way of description, not prescription. Description, not prescription. The Bible describes, and not every description is meant to serve as something that you and I are to emulate, something that you and I are to put into practice into our own lives. For example, Satan is recorded speaking numerous lies. Ahab is recorded as doing all manner of foolishness. And Jephthah is recorded as doing one of the sickest, wrongest, most confusing single acts of all time. Don't copy him. Learn from him. Don't say stupid stuff. And when you do, repent. Don't do the stupid stuff you said you would. Now, of course, there are many other examples in Scripture. Hebrews 11 comes to mind. And there are plenty of people in there that we are to emulate. Go into God's Word and find out how they live their lives and copy their faith. You may not have thought of it, but we are also to copy Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, description 
of what he did often comes so that you and I can consider what it would look like for us to do as Jesus did. If we are on earth to become more like Christ, then it stands to reason that we should do some of the things that he did. We are meant to mull over in our minds and hearts as we see him healing the sick, as we see him casting out demons, as we see him touching lepers. And we're supposed to consider, how does this example of love apply to me? How can I copy Jesus in this even though I have no power in myself to heal? How can I, for example, follow Paul's command Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Part of the reason why we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Hang in there. We're going to hit these stories and see how we can copy Jesus. But this morning, we are going to look at the very clear command of Jesus. Follow me. We will see from this specific passage some insights into Jesus, who he was, and who he chose to call to be his helpers, his followers. He called us these dull, rusty tools. And then we're going to look at two very specific passages in Mark that give what at least Mark thought was Jesus' central message to you and me who would follow him. So the command today is follow me. And we get that from our passage in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. Now let's establish what's going on. Jesus had just finished going toe-to-toe with Satan. Jesus is beginning the worldwide movement to save billions of people. Jesus is beginning the decisive moment in history. He inaugurates the most significant three years of all time. So what did Jesus do? He went to some podunk village on a mediocre lake in a tiny country on the fringe of the known world, and he talked to fishermen. The first recorded act of Jesus' ministry at Mark is not some spectacular miracle, but a commanding invitation to four common minimum wage earners into a fellowship, into a partnership with himself. Jesus invited these men to follow me. Now you got to understand, they stink. I mean, we're talking dead fish. I love fishing. And I worked in a fish cannery. I remember working in Soldotna, Alaska, and when I got home, my mom literally would not let me walk in the house. I had to take off my clothes on the side of the house, throw them in the trash can, and come in to the house wearing the towel around me. Come to think of it, I'm not sure she even kept that towel. Man, 
Jesus, this is Hickville. I mean, we're talking country bumpkins. Backwater accent, probably made shine on their back 40. Who would think to go to them for a worldwide work? Well, evidently Jesus did. And I say this, if God can save my soul, he can save anybody's. You see, in God's way of thinking, there's no such thing as a country bumpkin. There are only men and women who need Jesus. And using rusty, dull knives is exactly what God the Spirit specializes in. If he didn't, we all would die of neglect sitting on the shelf. Instead, Paul tells us we are God's fellow workers. Perhaps more to the point, when Paul says, working together with him, that is God the Father, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. What is that grace, Paul? It is the grace. It is God's undeserved power so that you can be Jesus' mouthpieces. Jesus calls you to follow him. And like Paul, we lovingly, sacrificially call our near ones to do the same. Listen, everybody. Jesus says, follow me. It's exactly what he says in our passage. Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. Now, come, follow me, is at once an invitation. Jesus says, hey, come on, bye. come on, come along. And it is a command. Come along now. Pastor Duane told me a story one time. One morning, his dad was at the table, and he said to Duane, how'd you like to feed the chickens today? Duane replied, no, I don't think I would. Duane discovered a moment later that his dad's invitation to feed the chickens while couched in a form of request was not a request. Duane's dad had a very specific plan for his son that day. Now his dad's command looked like an invitation, how'd you like to feed the chickens today? But was a command. And the consequences for not obeying, I'm sure, would have been painful for Duane, although very likely not harmful. But when we get to Jesus's, follow me, while it looks like a command, is also an invitation. You get to be my fellow worker. You get to have all the spiritual blessings you need to expand my kingdom. Now, the consequences for disobeying Jesus's invitation will be painful, and they will certainly be harmful. So Christian... Join in. Come on. Praise Jesus. We get to work with him for his glory, for our joy, and for the growth of his kingdom. Now, there is at least one other significant difference between Jesus' invitation command and Dwayne's dad's invitation command. We need to recognize that with the command of Jesus, we also have his power to obey. Augustine said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. 
And I think he may have been thinking of Peter's words when he said, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His glory and excellence. And we're going to see 16 short verses after this that Peter says, you know what's better than seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? God's Word. Exactly this that he's pointing at right here. So you can pray. You have reason to go to Jesus and say, Lord, this is what you've commanded to me. Give me the power I need. And then you can trust that promise for you in Christ, of God in Christ, and go out and do it. Jesus will command you to do and be and think and say many things. And he will give you the power you need. That undeserved power of God to accomplish his purpose. We call that grace. Depend on grace. Depend on Jesus. Hear a command. Hear a promise. And start living your life as if they are true for you. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. He commands in verse 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, it may surprise you what Jesus' point in these words are. Jesus wasn't making a clever pun based upon their jobs. Oh, oh we're fishermen. I get that one, Jesus. He wasn't trying to tell them to use deceptive techniques to sell people on something that wasn't good for them. Jesus instead is using a Old Testament metaphor that these future apostles standing along the lakeshore would have recognized. They would have understood it. Because the Old Testament prophets, when they talked about fishers of men, they referred to armies who brought judgment. Those who were subject to judgment of God would be caught with the fish hooks and pulled in a direction they did not want to go. For example, in Amos 4.2, the Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, look, see, pay attention, behold, the days are coming to you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Amos was called upon by God to allow his near ones to hear this sacrificial love. Flee the wrath to come. Jesus, in the same way, is calling the twelve to lay aside their nets and take up hooks. This was not a call to peace and prosperity. This was not a call to change your method of fishing. To be a fisher of men is to be involved in the eschatological judgment, the last day's judgment, God's judgment on people who reject Him. Now, it's also crucial to note that God is the judge. God is the eschatological jury, the last day's executioner, not us. Jesus speaking like this to his disciples is a sovereign call, a decisive exclamation that the end times are now and the moment for delay has passed. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now. Do not delay. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Follow me, Jesus says. 
And while we recognize that God is a judge, God uses means. He uses finite, sinful country bumpkins like me. We are the means he uses to accomplish his perfect purposes. And in this case, those purposes are to call people to repentance. Make no mistake, one of our chief responsibilities, one of your chief responsibilities is to call your near ones to flee the wrath to come. It is coming. However you think to make that call to your near ones, warn them because you, Christian are a fisher of people around you. And now, our passage gets more interesting. Verse 18, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Bottom line, they followed him. They just abandoned their dad. They just dropped their nets and started walking. Now, you are not an apostle, clearly. Neither am I, obviously. Nevertheless, the call of the twelve and the call of you and me share some important similarities. The call to Jesus. Follow me. The call to Jesus is one that requires a fundamental change of perspective, a different, completely different change of priorities, even a fundamental change of loyalty. No longer is your father and his business primary. They left Zebedee and their dad with the servants to bring in the catch. The call to Jesus is one that is an invitation both to suffer, Jesus said he had no place to lay his head, and to rejoice because we will join him in glory. You, church, are not called to invite people to something nice and sweet and comfortable chairs, pleasing music. It may be that you offer these things to remove some barriers. But the point can never be nice chairs and hot coffee. The point must always be the call of Jesus. Follow me. Even when following him involves pain and suffering. As we've said now, many times already in our series, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, always accompanies His disciples to glory through suffering. And I get this, among many other places, from the number one apostle, Peter himself. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But... Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his, voice, when his glory is revealed. Now, listen, I'm with you. It's sad. It's disconcerting. It is reality that we must suffer in this world. This world is not fair. This life, when considered alone, is not just. Fortunately, This world is not all there is. Praise Jesus. And the first second in heaven will make everything worth it. Jesus promises. And Jesus says, follow me. Even so, come quickly, 
Lord Jesus. So in our passage, we've seen some important truths in these verses. It's my job as a preacher, after all, to point those out. But it is also my job as a preacher to show you truths and how these truths will be played out in our lives. Now, fortunately, Mark has two big themes in his gospel. Jesus and what it means to follow him. I learn who Jesus is and I learn how to follow him. Now, two passages in particular stand out. Turn with me there, first of all, in Mark 8, 34 to 38. Jesus says, Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now we are going step by step through Jesus' argument when we get to chapter 8. Until now, I want to look at, let us deny ourselves and let us take up our cross and follow me. And so we begin with a quote that I've read to you before by Dallas Willard. Self-denial or being dead to self is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me and has no control over me. Well, I don't like reading that because that hurts. It's frustrating. Why, Dallas? Why, because you're depending, when you're denying yourself, when you're dead to yourself, you're depending on grace, God's power. You're depending on Jesus. Why, Dallas? Because when you are denying yourself in this scriptural way, when you are dead to yourself in this way that Jesus means, you're looking to something better than saving your earthly life. This is what Hebrews 11 is getting at. You're looking to something better than merely blue chip stocks. Now, fortunately, Jesus says, take up your cross. And, and he helps us unpack, deny yourself a bit further. So then, what does it mean to take up your cross? Get rid of the metaphor. What will it look like for me to obey this command of Jesus? First thing you got to understand, the cross we are commanded to bear is not suffering in general. You stub your toe and you, you break your pinky toe. That's not you bearing your cross. That's you not paying attention where you're walking. Now, it's also true that all suffering can and will be redeemed. Praise Jesus. But specifically, Jesus says, suffering for my sake in the Gospels. Specifically, the cross is the willingness to suffer whatever it takes to show your heart and others that God is great and God is glorious. Bearing the cross is the willingness to suffer whatever it takes to show yourself and others that God is great and God is glorious. Suffering like Jesus going to the cross. 
suffering like bearing insults and mistreatment. And while you're doing this, you're looking to Jesus to provide you the strength. And while you're doing this, you're suffering in such a way that people take note. Wow, he's not cursing us in response. Because they see you suffering patiently because you are trusting Jesus while you're suffering. That's what it means to take up your cross. Taking up your cross daily means that you have a change of perspective. It means you look at the world differently and then you act accordingly. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm relying on the ideas that I got from John Piper's look at the book Devo that he has on desiringgod.org. I very much encourage you to go and all of his look at the books are great. But specifically, I want to look at verse 35. It says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. And right now we're going to put up a chart. And on this chart, I'm representing, I'm showing what the cross represented and more or less what the opposite of the cross is. So the cross in the first century Mediterranean world meant opposition. The government's opposed to you. They're putting you on a cross. It represented shame. It represented suffering and death. And of course, the opposite of these are approval, glory, comfort, and safety. Now, if you are going to try to save your life temporarily, you're going to do whatever you can to avoid the cross. You're going to do whatever you can to avoid what the world views as opposition, shame, suffering, and death. And you're going to do whatever you can to try to get the world's approval and glory and comfort and safety. But long-term investing, better than blue-chip investing, means that you take up your cross daily. It means you open yourself up to the opposition, shame, suffering, and death that may come to you because you take up your cross. Because you are standing up for what you see Jesus commanding you and promising you. Now, you do that, you may well lose your life. But what you will gain is the approval, glory, comfort, and safety of heaven. And that is something you can never lose. Taking a long view of the stock market is best. You might take some even dramatic losses short term, but things usually even out. Taking the long-term view of life is best. You might take some even dramatic death, for example, short-term losses, but these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them. Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me. One last passage. Mark 10. Jesus is interested in teaching us discipleship. And the Mark 8, 34-38 and the Mark 10, 42-45 are, are the most important. We would do well to memorize them. 
Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So much here. We are going to spend at least a week when we get to Mark 10. But I want to answer one question. What does it mean to be someone's servant? What is Jesus asking his disciples? What is Jesus asking you and me to do? Again, we'll keep this simple for the sake of clarity, and we'll expand on this later. But to be someone's servant is to love them. After all, to love one another is the most repeated command in all of the New Testament. So then we ask the question, what does it mean to love someone? Love is the joyful willingness to sacrifice for the good of the beloved. If this life is everything, then you should get all you can and can all you get. If this life is everything, then you need to fight to save it. You want the approval. You want the glory. You want all that the world offers. You will serve money, pleasure, and power, and then you'll die. If, however, this life is not everything, if there is another life, then the best investment plan for your time, your talent, and your treasures will look very different. And if the coming life is determined by your choices on this earth, then it is very likely that saving your life for eternity will look very different from saving your life temporarily. It may look like you treat yourself as other people's servants. It may look like you follow a first century carpenter in loving your near ones because Jesus says, follow me. Now, it's a grave mistake to believe that you can call yourself a Christian and not seek to live like Jesus, not to pursue living like Jesus. Jesus' favorite apostle, John, says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walk like Jesus walked. He did not save his life in terms of taking the easy way out. Oh my goodness, he came to the cesspool of humanity on earth. And he says right there in Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that is how we are to live. We are to live as well, serving and loving those Jesus put near us. And sometimes that means being a ransom for them. Will you always be successful? Obviously not. But remember, grace is opposed to earning. Grace is never opposed to effort. In fact, grace often presumes effort. So go to Jesus. Go to His Word. Put yourself in His Word every day. 
maybe even more time than you spend in other entertainments. Might be something worthwhile. Because as you do, you know Jesus better. And as you know Jesus better, you will love him more and you will trust him more. You will live like him more. And people will smell you coming by and they will we don't like that guy. He smells like death and they'll push you away. But there will be others who will smell you and they'll say, I want more of that. Your job is not to determine what you smell like. Your job is to follow Jesus. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you. Oh, Jesus, we long to follow you more closely. We want to know you better and therefore love you and trust you more. Send your spirit so that we will for your glory, for our joy, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.